the end of the world is nigh. That's the stereotypical phrase that uh, Christians would display on, on banners. If you see them in movies, uh, maybe wearing sandwich boards that declare the end of the world is nigh. It's one of the ways that, that, that Christians are held up to ridicule. But at the same time, I'm sure it wouldn't be too hard to find real life examples. And yet for all the mockery, the end of the world really is nigh. It's near. How near it is, we don't know. We certainly can't put a date on it, even though many have tried. Jesus warned us that no one knows the day or the hour. But he does tell us in the second last verse of the Bible, Surely I am coming soon. Uh, by the way, it's not just Christians who believe that the end of the world is nigh. Uh, I wonder, have you noticed that increasingly in the news? Uh, for all that, that secular atheists might laugh at Christians uh, as we talk about the end of the world, they have their own predictions about the end of the world. They have their own end time views. Almost every day, it seems, we, we hear doomsday predictions that the end of the world is coming through man-made climate change. They have their views of the end of the world as they have their own view of salvation, uh, their own view of what we must do to uh, be saved from the coming destruction. And I think it only goes to show that when a society tries to rid itself of Christianity, they will come up with another belief system to fill the vacuum. That's not to say all their beliefs about climate change are, are, are necessarily a complete fraud. Uh, what I can say for sure as a minister of the gospel is that the end of the world won't come about through man-made climate change. A headline in The Guardian a couple of years ago said, The world only burns if we let it. The world only burns if we let it. But that's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. That is a man-centered view of looking at the world that gives human beings the power to bring this world to an end. Second Peter chapter 3 in, in verse 7, uh, we, we read it there. It talks about the heavens and earth that now exist being stored up for fire. And that fire, we're told, will come on the day of the Lord and it will come at the word of the Lord. This world will end when God says it will end. Human beings will not bring it about. Other than that, it's not really my role to tell you what you should or shouldn't believe about climate change. Uh, but, but what I can do is echo the words of uh, the 1973 Nobel Prize winner for physics uh, uh, who pointed out that it has become a new religion. In many ways, it has become uh, more like a belief system that can't be questioned than anything else. And that, that's the climate uh, we're, we're living in, uh, uh, unintentional pun. Uh, but, but living in that context, it, it, I think it should make us feel less awkward in, in talking about the end of the world. Because we're living among people whose beliefs about the end of the world are, are probably stronger than, than the beliefs of some Christians about the end of the world. And in light of that, talking about the Bible's teaching uh, concerning the end of the world might actually uh, provide an evangelistic opportunity. 
People are anxious, particularly young people. Books are being written to try and help them cope with climate change anxiety. A book came out in May with the title Generation Dread. Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. But how do you find purpose if you've just evolved? Uh, and how, how, how can you be content when you're living on a piece of rock that, that could implode in your lifetime and you only have a few decades left to save humanity? So that's all to say that we're coming to a book that talks about the end of the world when everyone's talking about the end of the world. The very people who, who would mock Christians for saying the end is nigh are themselves living in a constant state of panic because they think the end of the world is nigh. Except for them, it's, it's not dependent on the actions of a, of a good and sovereign God, but, but on the, dependent on the actions of human beings. So the message of Second Peter is that the end of the world is coming. And yet it doesn't stop there. Because it's not just that the end of the world is coming, but it's about how we are to live in light of that fact. Look over to to chapter 3, verse 11 again. We read it earlier. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Or go down a couple of verses more to, to to chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. If Christian thinking about the end of the world doesn't lead to us living holier and godlier lives in the here and now, something has gone wrong. If if it has just become a topic for, for speculation... Someone has summed up the message of this book of 2 Peter in in three words, uh, which uh, I'll give you the three words and then explain them. Uh, Ethics by eschatology. Ethics by eschatology. Ethics uh, means how we live, and eschatology means the study of the end of the world. So, So ethics by eschatology, it means how we live now in light of what's coming next. For Peter and the other biblical writers, the end of the world is a really practical doctrine. It isn't something to to sit and speculate about, but it's to drive us to live holy lives here and now. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And in these opening verses of the book, he gives us two encouragements to live these holy and godly lives that we're called to live. Uh, Two encouragements which also help with two objections that we might raise. Because we might say, well Peter, I know I meant to live a life of holiness and godliness, but that's all right for you to say, you're an apostle, I'm not, I'm just a regular person trying to keep my head above water. I wasn't brought up in a Christian home, Peter, you just have to be realistic. The other objection that we might raise is that 
we just don't have the resources to live the sort of holy and godly lives that, that Peter calls us to live. We're not part of a big church. There aren't many Christians round about to encourage us. So in light of that, we could lower our expectations either for ourselves or for others. We'd love to live holy and godly lives, but we just don't have the resources. But in answer to those two potential objections, we have, we have two encouragements tonight. And we'll spend uh, most of our time on the first one. Uh, the first encouragement tonight is that your faith is of equal standing with the apostles. Your faith is of equal standing with the apostles. Who wrote the letter of Second Peter? That's the sort of thing that, that commentators spend a lot of time discussing. But it's not exactly rocket science. Uh, boys and girls, who, who do you think wrote Second Peter? Well, well Peter wrote it. Uh, Simon Peter or, or Simeon Peter in verse 1. Why, why, why Simeon Peter? It's just an alternate uh, version of Simon. That's what Peter is called in Acts 15, uh, where God willing we'll get to next Lord's Day morning. And who is this Simon Peter? Well, he's a, a servant of Jesus Christ, as he describes himself here. Literally a slave. Someone who is now owned by and totally devoted to Jesus Christ. As all Christians are, by the way, and not just apostles. The only two options for any human being is to remain a slave to sin or become a slave to Christ. Years ago, I got my mum a little flip calendar that has a quote from the Puritans or other people from church history for every day of the year. And when we were over in July, uh, one of the days, uh, the quote was something along the lines of this, that, that to become a Christian is to exchange our so-called freedom, which is actually slavery, for the slavery which is perfect freedom. To become a Christian is to exchange our, our so-called freedom that the unbeliever thinks they have, which is actually slavery, and exchange that for the slavery that is perfect freedom. And if we truly saw ourselves as slaves of Jesus Christ, wouldn't that rid us of the mindset which says, well, I'm going to commit, but only up to a point. We like to be in control. We like to decide how involved we're going to get. And that's okay if we're in a partnership with equals. But if Jesus Christ really is God, as verse 2 tells us, then we don't get to define our level of commitment to him. Now, don't get me wrong. He is a, a glorious master. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Especially compared to the yoke that Satan and sin would want to put around our necks. But we don't get to define our level of commitment to him. Simon Peter realises that he is a slave of Jesus Christ, as all of us are if we're Christians. But unlike us, Peter is also an apostle. He's one of the original 12 disciples, 
one of Jesus' inner circle, in fact, along with James and John. Uh, boys and girls, Jesus' three closest disciples were Peter, James and John. Peter, James and John. And we know from the Gospels that Peter was impetuous. He acted without thinking at times. He, he acted first and thought later. He let Jesus down badly. He, he denied that he ever knew him. But Jesus forgave him, restored him, and commissioned him to feed his sheep. And one way he fulfilled that commission was by writing these two letters. So Peter, the slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, is the one writing this letter. But who is he writing it to? Well, since Peter was the apostle to the Gentile, the, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, many have assumed that, that Peter is writing to Jews here. He's the apostle to the Jews, so of course if he's writing a letter, he's writing to, to Jews. Uh, though I think, as we've seen in the book of Acts, that just because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, it, it didn't mean he didn't also minister to Jews. Uh, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 10, I think we get the biggest clue as to whether Peter's writing to Jews or Gentiles. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 10, so the previous book, uh, Peter writes to this same group of people and he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And that language of not being a people sounds a lot more applicable to Gentiles than Jews. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, Paul explicitly quotes a prophecy from Hosea saying that those who, who were not his people would be called my people. And he applies it to God's salvation coming to the Gentiles. So I wouldn't go, go to the stake for it, but, but I think it's, it's strongly likely that Peter's writing to Gentiles here. So Peter, uh, as he writes, is an apostle. He's one who spent three years with Jesus. And he's writing to a group of people who we can say for sure are, are not apostles and who are most likely Gentiles. Uh, one of the, the amazing things about, about uh, 1 Peter particularly is language uh, that, that was used of Jews in the Old Testament is applied to these Gentiles in the New Testament that they, that they, they have been brought in and that, that they are, are now a royal priesthood and, and so on that, that they are, are the elect exiles of the dispersion so we know for sure that Peter's an apostle uh, most likely writing to Gentiles people not brought up in the faith uh, people whose parents hadn't gone to church people who are first generation Christians uh, the first Christians in their families. And how does Peter describe them? Well, amazingly, he describes them as those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Some of them were baby Christians that he's writing to. They, they had no heritage in the church going back generations. And yet he says that they had obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles. When it comes to being a Christian, you either are or you aren't. You're either adopted into the family of God with all the rights and privileges 
that that involves or you're still outside but there isn't a lesser category of Christians if if you buy a car there are different trim levels that you can get you can get the, the standard uh, trim level of car or you can pay, pay a bit more and get a, get a special edition or, or perhaps pay even more and get the premium edition. Uh, and on some of those hot days recently, uh, our girls were wishing that we, we paid a bit more for, for a model that had a sunroof. But that's the choice that you make. You decide at the time and if you go for a lower trim level, you're stuck with it. You can't upgrade even if you suddenly find yourself pretty flush with cash, you couldn't say, well, well, well I'd like to, to upgrade and get a sunroof added on, please. Uh, you're, you're just at that level and you can't change it. But there aren't different trim levels of Christians. There aren't different levels of Christians. Yes, we have different rules to play in the church. Yes, some Christians ha- have more in terms of the world's possessions than others. Yes, it's true, we're not all apostles. But the the new believer who has just committed their life to Christ has a faith of equal standing as any apostle ever had. Yes, some will be stronger Christians and so have more joy and peace than others. And that's something that's not necessarily connected to how long someone has been a Christian. Someone can have been a Christian a long time and still be, be a weak Christian. They've never really grown much in their faith. But the faith of the strongest Christian and the faith of the weakest Christian is of equal value. Is it of equal value? Maybe if faith was something that we earned then there would be different categories. But we don't earn it. We, we obtain it. We're, we're given it. Verse 1, and God gives to each of his children a faith of equal standing. Why? Because that faith is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that is of infinite value. There's nothing more precious than that because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is nothing less than the righteousness of God. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus took our sin and we got his righteousness. And so we are all on the same level. We're all covered with the righteousness of Christ. And notice how our Lord is described here in verse 1 at the end of the verse. He's described as our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Hidden away in Second Peter, which has been called one of the most neglected books in the New Testament. And yet it's one of the clearest verses in the whole Bible that teaches that Jesus is God. It says, our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Down in verse 11, Peter will call Jesus our Lord and Saviour. Uh, whereas here in verse 1, he calls him our God and Saviour. And both verses are describing the Lord Jesus. He, one verse he, he's Lord and Saviour and the other verse he's God and Saviour uh, there, there is something that, that 
uh, stood out to me th- this week. There was something I, I, I looked into because if you happen to be following along in the King James Version, it, it has this right in the margin but wrong in the main text because there's an actual little and ha- has crept in. And, and this week I, I was just wondering how did that get there? And you might think, well, well, it's not much difference if it calls them our God and Saviour or our God and our Saviour. And really, it isn't that much different. But if someone really wanted to try and say that Jesus wasn't God, they, they could point to that and say, well, look, it's talking about two different people. It's not saying that Jesus is God. It's not saying that he is God, but it's not saying that he is. It's talking about our God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's not talking about Jesus as God and Saviour. Uh, but then a, a note was added in in the margin in the next century which says that it should read our God and Saviour. Uh, just like every English Bible before ever had and just like every English Bible after ever has. Now in some ways it's, it's something that's not even worth mentioning. Even if the extra word does change the meaning, which I think it would be even debatable, would the extra word change the meaning? The Bible's teaching on Jesus being God, it doesn't depend on one verse. Uh, the, the doctrine of Jesus being God, it's not so weak that it depends on one verse. It's just a mistake. And in fact, it's not even a mistake from the King James translators. It's a mistake in one of the printed editions of the Greek New Testament that they were using. It had an extra word creep in where there shouldn't be one, which is almost certainly just a printer's mistake way back in 1598. There's no Greek manuscript in the world that has that extra R. But the reason that that I even mention all this is because if it was the other way around, if, if the King James Version had said our God and Saviour, and if modern Bible versions had said our God and our Saviour, well, people would be up in arms, people would be writing books about it, people would be on the internet saying that these modern versions are teaching that Jesus isn't God, and the whole thing would be nonsense, just as it is when people make those same claims in reverse. And I have become convinced that in the Christian world, more untrue things are said about Bible versions than are said about any other subject. And that doesn't mean that, that most people who say those things are deliberately lying. Most of them are just repeating other things that they've heard. But it's tragic because ordinary Christian people hear some of the things that they're saying and their confidence in their Bibles is shaken. Now there is one version of the Bible that has been deliberately changed to try and remove references to Jesus being God. And that's the the New World translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. But the chances of you accidentally picking up one of those are slim. But apart from that, if you use any major Bible translation, you will be fine. There are some that I wouldn't read from from the pulpit, but none will lead you astray. None that will leave you believing a different gospel. But to come back to the point of of the verse in question, verse 1, there are not different levels of Christians. Either we're covered by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ, or we're not. And if we are, then we can look at an apostle like Peter, we can look at the holiest Christian that we know, and we can say, they may be closer to God than I am, but I stand before God in the exact same position as they do. 
as a beloved son or daughter, as someone who God delights in like he delights in his own son. So the end is nigh. And because of that, we're to be living lives of righteousness and holiness. And it is just as possible for us to do that as it's been for any Christian who's ever lived. Because we have obtained a faith of equal standing with theirs. There are no second class Christians. There are no second class Christians. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But then secondly, tonight and more briefly, we can live such lives of holiness and godliness because God has given us all that we need. So secondly, tonight, remember, God has given you all that you need to live a godly life. God has given you all that you need to live a godly life. Do you have everything that you need? Uh, Has anyone asked you that recently? Do you have anything everything that you need for a new term at school, your, your uniform, your, your pencil case, uh, your school bag and so on? Or do you have everything you need to start homeschooling? Do you have all the, all the equipment that you need? Or do you have everything you need for your new flat? Or, or, or do you still need a sofa? But here's another question. Do you have everything you need to live a godly life? That's what verse 3 is talking about when it says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It sounds to us that Peter is talking about physical life and spiritual life there when he says life and godliness. But it's actually just another way of saying a godly life. Life and godliness means a godly life. And so to ask the same question again, do you have everything that you need to live a godly life? I wonder if deep down some of us would say no. If deep down we might think, well, I don't really have everything I need. I need to be part of a bigger church. I need more Christian friends. I need to live in a different era of history. No, actually, I don't have all that I need. We say, I need this, I I need that. Or or maybe we don't even formulate that thought in our heads, but we still act as if we do. We still act as if we'd be better Christians, if we had better resources. But God says to us, My divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have everything we need, and it's all his gift. In verses 3 and again in verse 4, we have the word granted. None of this is earned. It's all of grace and it's all purchased for us by Christ on the cross. And it's all granted to us from the very beginning of the Christian life. When we're born, the seed of every sin is in our hearts. Murder is there in our hearts in seed form, even if we never commit it. And those seeds stay there, even when we become Christians. But when we're born again, the seed of every grace is born in us. Just like a child that's born healthy has everything that it will need as an adult. There aren't add-on body parts that they have to go and find later on. 
They already have all the parts of the body that they will need as adults. And in the same way, from the very beginning of the Christian life, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. Yes, we need to seek the the growth of of those things just as as a child's physical body will need to to grow in order for it to become an adult. Uh, And we'll come uh, to what that looks like next week. But we already have everything we need, not by nature, uh, but by God's divine power. We're not born with it, but we're born again with it because God's power grants it to us. So do you have everything you need for what you'll face this week? If you're a Christian, you do. If you face a strong temptation to commit a particular sin this week, or if it suddenly dawns on you that the way you're behaving at a particular moment isn't the way a Christian should be behaving, to give in to that sin or to have that momentary realisation about your behaviour, but then shut it out and keep on arguing or whatever you're doing. That would be to say that God's divine power isn't actually strong enough to keep you from that sin. It would be to say that God's divine power hasn't granted to you what you need. So let's go confidently into the week ahead, knowing that his divine power has granted us everything we need to live the life he calls us to lead to lead not confident in our own strength let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall but but humbly confident in his strength prayerfully depending on him and attributing whatever success we have to him we have everything we need for the life that he calls us to live And next week we'll come back to look in more detail at what that life he calls us to live looks like and to see what a glorious thing it is in verse 4 to become a partaker of the divine nature. But tonight we've seen what the great theme of this letter is. It's that the end of the world is nigh. Or to put it in a more biblical way, It's that Jesus is coming soon and it's about how to live in light of that. And for all the things which might seem to militate against us, for all the things that might seem that they're going to stop us living the life we've been called to live, remember, your faith is of equal standing with that of the apostles and God has given you all that you need to live a godly life. How gracious God is to us. And how different the week ahead might look if we truly lived as if God had given us everything we need to live the lives he calls us to live. Amen. We'll close by singing from the psalm we looked at last Lord's Day evening uh, because it's a psalm about God providing us everything that we need. Psalm 31 Psalm 31, 19 to the end on page 58. Psalm 31 from verse 19 to the end on page 58. Verse 19, he has a treasure room of goodness from which to supply you in the week ahead. 
Verse 20, he is a shelter to hide you from abusive words. And in verse 24, he will send courage to you. Uh, There's no secret treasure room of things that God only supplies to apostles and to particularly holy Christians. We have access to everything that they have access to. So do you have everything that you need for the week ahead? Well, you have everything you need to live the life God wants you to live. And for that, we'll praise him with these words. So we'll aim for tune 103, tune 103, uh, Psalm 31, 19 to the end. We'll stand and sing.